Thank you for downloading and listening to the Briam Bible Church Sunday Morning Podcast. Briam Bible Church is located in Shoreline, Washington, morning worship at 11, and many more events throughout the week. For more information, please visit our website at www.bereanshoreline.org. I'm going to dismiss the children to Children's Church and Children's Choir this time. And as they're going, I have one more announcement to make that Kevin's story reminded me of. We typically, every this time of year, we typically have a giving tree out in the narthex that has tags on it that you can take and and bring gifts back that we collect for a different local charity or, or things like that. This year, you may have noticed that we're not doing one. And that's mostly because logistically we weren't really sure how we were going to do that with some of our services in there and some here. And we don't really have a great collection point right now because things aren't quite finished. And so what I, I would love to encourage you to do, there's a couple of things. First of all, as Kevin mentioned, there's plenty of good charities in your neighborhood and, and in our community that we'd love to just encourage you to, to give towards and, and support. But also, if you'd like to do something here... Our friends Mark and Amico Prigmore, who are right here, they have a, you probably have seen in your neighborhood the little free library where you take a book or give a book. They have a little free pantry that you drop food off. And so we'd love for you, if, if you want to bring something here and, and make a donation to bring some non-perishable items, you can either bring them to church or you can drop them off at their house just around the corner. And they said that they, if the pantry overflows, that's great. They can store it in their place and continually restock it. So if you're looking for something to do and you want to participate in that, as opposed to or in addition to some of the other things around you, we'd love to have you. You can just drop it off here in by one of the trees, and every Sunday we'll collect it and take it over to the Prigmore's house and, and get that set up. So thank you, as always, for your generosity. It's so great when we do these kinds of things. And, yeah, let's... Thanks, Gary. All right, it's nice to have all of you with us. You seem so far away back there. I think I can kind of see the whites of your eyes, but um, so you know, I, some of the synagogues I've been in, the the, pul- the pulpit podium's like right about here. Maybe we got to do that. Maybe Craig, hey Craig, can we think of something like that? Maybe design. Uh, where's Craig? Shane, there you are, Shane. What do you think about that pulpit right in the middle there? Kind of might be a little, <laughs> could be a little fire code issue, but uh, anyway. I mean, I appreciated Craig's help and work with this uh, remodel project. It's been great. And we are getting toward the end. And I'm anticipating uh, by the weekend of Christmas weekend, we should think we'll be in our narthex, hopefully. Uh, the whole thing, so you can see the whole thing, enjoy the fire and all that kind of stuff. So uh, we're looking forward to that. Now, thank you again for your flexibility. This is the time of year that we celebrate a lot of traditions. you have family traditions? You have some of the movies you break out every year and watch, some of the music you get out. Um, you know, here at church, we have our traditions. The last several years, Pastor Gary's organized our Advent uh, calendar reading. And each year it's the same themes because it's a tradition that uh, we, are, we are repeating. And we want you to think about, I know you have traditions in your family, our children participating, our choir next Sunday, sharing their Christmas music. Uh, during the morning service, be sure to invite a friend. We've expanded our narthex, so you have plenty of room to visit and be comfortable. Invite your friends. Tell them to come and join us. Uh, invite someone you haven't seen for a while. Say, hey, we missed you. Come and join us this week. Uh, choir is going to be sharing. And so that's one of our traditions. One of the traditions that I have is that every, about every couple of years, I share with you one of my favorite Christmas stories. It's gotten to be about every two to three years. And as I think of the 
traditions of Christmas, and as pastor, you know, Christmas, Easter, these various holidays were kind of theme-focused. And so one of my favorite uh, Christmas time stories comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 10. If you'd open your Bibles, the Gospel of John, chapter 10. John, chapter 10. You, you don't... Matthew and Luke have the Christmas narratives. Uh, Mark does not, and John does not have the narrative of the birth of Christ. But uh, I'd like us to turn today to John, chapter 10, and let's have a word of prayer. Fathers, we open your word for the next few moments. We pray that our hearts will be open to your word and that your word would impact our lives and draw us close to you, encourage us to walk with you. And Father, we thank you today for this Christmas season that we can celebrate the birth of our Lord and Savior, God become flesh, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we gather today. Bless our children as they continue to minister uh, with one another to learn from your word. We thank you for their sharing with us this morning. It's just so great to have them with us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. John chapter 10, verse 22. Then came the feast of dedication at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was in the temple area walking in Solomon's colonnade. The feast of dedication. So this is my my tradition of every two to three years. I remind you, I think I stuck it back here, that the feast of dedication, all the Bible scholars really agree, is the feast of Hanukkah. You may be seeing the menorahs around. Actually, the city of Shoreline has one up at the city center up here, and they've been lighting it each night. And uh, each night of Hanukkah, which is celebrated, of course, in the Jewish community, the servant candle, the shamash, which is the servant candle, is used to light a candle. Last Sunday night, the first candle was lit, because that was the first day of Hanukkah. It was actually on Monday, but the, the Jewish day begins at 6 o'clock in the evening, the previous evening. And so each day this week, a light has been added by the serving candle each day. Tonight will be the last candle. It just so happened that tonight will be candle number eight, will be the last candle that will be lit for Hanukkah, uh, which is the feast of dedication, That because there's no other feast in the wintertime in the Bible, there's no other feast in the wintertime that would have been held that could have possibly been that, and because of the nature of it, serving candles in the fall, there you go. Because of the nature of it, the Bible teachers pretty much all agree that this was, it's not in Leviticus. Hanukkah is not one of the Jewish high holy days. It's not one of the festivals in Leviticus chapter 23. But it is one that was celebrated by the first century, the Feast of Dedication. And of course, just, just to remind you, I know a lot of you know this story, but just a quick thumbnail sketch. The story of Hanukkah takes place between the Old and New Testament. And it was during that time that the Syrians, the, when the Alexander the Great's empire broke up, part of it was the Syrian empire, the Seleucids, the Syrian empire to the north and east of, of Palestine. They ruled Palestine. And during that time, about 170, 180, 160 BC, before the time of Christ, they were very oppressive to the Jews. Remember when the Old Testament closed in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, the temple had been rebuilt. It wasn't like Solomon's temple. Remember when they rebuilt it and dedicated it, the older people wept because it wasn't like the old temple. The younger people were thrilled to have a temple again. 
There was a, a group of refugee people who had come back from Babylon, had settled in Palestine. And that group grew. There was a temple, there was a city of Jerusalem, and there were Jews living in Palestine during the time between the Testaments. But the Syrians became very oppressive to the point of trying to, well, besides ridiculing and, and so on, forcing them to abandon their Jewish their Jewish traditions and their religion, trying to force them to eat pork, trying to force them to sacrifice to pagan gods, uh, began to murder and kill them. It became very oppressive to the point of the king Antiochus, the Syrian king, going into the temple and blaspheming the Holy of Holies, offering a pig on the altar, going into the Holy of Holies. In a little town of Modin, outside of Jerusalem in the Judean hills, a, a, a priest, Matiahu, Matthias, he said, enough, no. And he actually uh, would kill anybody who would defy Israel's faith and religion. And his son, Judas the Hammer, Judas Maccabee, began a rebellion. And he began a rebellion against the Syrians. And the Syrians had 40,000 in their army. They came down to put this rebellion down. But through a series of amazing guerrilla-type warfare victories, they won. The Maccabees won. They defeated the Syrians, way overwhelmed, way overnumbered, but they beat them. And they, and they, and they kicked them out of Palestine. And they established an independent Jewish nation. And in the process of doing that, and that's important for the New Testament, because it gives you a little background. There was about a hundred years where there was an independent Jewish nation in Palestine from about 167 to about 67 BC. And it was during that time they had an army, they had coins, they had a king, they had a high priest. It was an independent nation. And when it fell, there was no independent Jewish nation until 1948. During that time, they rededicated the temple. And in order to rededicate the temple, as we saw in class this morning, it was a seven-day feast. It was a seven-day dedication. They only had, as the story goes, the tradition is, they only had enough kosher, purified olive oil to light the candle in the temple grounds, right? The menorah candle in temple grounds to light it. There was only enough oil for one day because it took another seven days to purify oil. You didn't just use any old oil. You didn't go buy Wesson and throw it in the, <laughs> the candle. You had to use kosher oil and there was only enough oil for one day. But according to tradition, miraculously, it lasted the entire eight days till the new oil was ready to be used again. And hence the eight candles of Hanukkah to represent each night this miracle of God, according to tradition, that took place. And that was the dedication of the temple. And it's at this time, in verse 22, then came the feast of dedication at Jerusalem. They were there to remember and to celebrate what we call today Hanukkah, the, the festival of lights. They called it the festival of dedication. And it was winter time. It was winter time. And it can get cold in Jerusalem in winter time. It's up in the hills. It's up in the Judean mountains. It can get cold. And it says Jesus was in the temple area walking in Solomon's colonnade. The temple area was surrounded by these colonnades with posts. And the, and the outside would be, just like here, would be walled. And the inside you would walk under the portico. And this would be open air. And the temple would be uh, well, to the west, the temple would be over here. 
And so Jesus was walking around in one of those colonnade areas. And it's kind of interesting. It almost gives the impression he's just walking around. He may have been talking. He may have been discussing. He wasn't going anywhere. He was there in the temple. Incidentally, Matthew, Mark, and Luke only have Jesus coming back to Jerusalem for the Passion Week. But it's in John we find out he made two other trips down to Jerusalem. And he came down specifically for the Feast of Dedication. And it says in verse 24, the Jews... It just means the people. I mean, that's who was there with the Jewish people. It'd be like if I was downtown Seattle. He said the Seattleites gathered around. The, the Jewish people there gathered around him. And they said, notice, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, the Christos, would be the translation of the Hebrew. They're, they're speaking Aramaic, not Greek. This is Greek, Christos. They're speaking Aramaic. And they would say, if you are the Mashiach, if you are the anointed one, if that's you, then tell us plainly, are you or are you not the Messiah? Tell us. Because the rumors are swirling. People are saying, he's got to be the Messiah. He's the one we've been waiting for. Others are saying no. In fact, others are saying he's demon-possessed. I mean, there's all this controversy and back and forth. Just tell us, are you the Messiah? And I want you to notice how Jesus responds to them. Jesus answered in verse 25, I did tell you, but you did not believe. Now, if you stop for a moment and reflect on the Gospel of John, if you were to read through the Gospel of John, you actually will not find any place where Jesus flat out says, I am the Messiah, except where? The woman at the well. I am he who speaks to you. That is the only place where Jesus has plainly said, I'm the Messiah. He has not outwardly just said that as far as recorded in John, I am the Messiah. But he says to them, I've already told you I'm the Messiah. How would they have known that? How should they have realized it? Well, he goes on to say, the miracles I do in my Father's name speak for me, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. When did Jesus tell them, I am the Messiah? Earlier in this chapter, in chapter 10, the preceding section before Jesus comes to the Feast of Dedication, and whether this was in Galilee or if he's already down in Jerusalem, we read in verse 7, Therefore Jesus said again, I tell you the truth, I am the gate for the sheep. All who came before me were thieves and robbers. The sheep did not listen to them. I am the gate. Verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd who owns the sheep. Verse 14. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. They should have got that. And those who were part of his flock did. Because when he announced, I am the good shepherd, I am doing these miracles from God, what more do you need? Friends, they should have hearkened back to Micah chapter 5. It's a passage that we know well from this time of year. In Micah chapter 5, verse 2. I can just read it to you if you like. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, Though you are small among the clans of Judah, 
Out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Therefore, Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor gives birth and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth, and he will be their peace. You can take a few moments and read Isaiah chapter 40, from which you'll find much of the text from portions of Handel's Messiah. And in that portion, you will see clearly that the Messiah is referred to as the shepherd of Israel. And Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. I have told you this. I am watching over my flock. And God and they and those who are part of my flock, they know my voice. They get it. And you are not. Verse 25 again. I did tell you, but you did not believe. This is at the Feast of Dedication, where they are reliving the dedication of the Holy Temple that God had given them. The miracles I do in my Father's name speak for me. But you did not believe me, because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I am the good shepherd. My sheep know my voice. And God has protected them. And they are coming. And they are receiving me as the Messiah, the promised Holy One, the promised Messiah. Mary was proclaimed to her, the one that will be born of you is, is, would be the Holy One. The Holy One of God. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. And He will be holy that is born of you. He will come from Bethlehem. He was born in Bethlehem. He was the shepherd, the good shepherd of Israel. And they listened to Him. And I can, I can just imagine the scene as, as He's in the colonnade um, with these people and discussing. And, he, and He's saying this. And, and I can imagine the wheels turning and them listening and maybe some beginning to put together, he did say he was the good shepherd. Yes, we know the Messiah will be the shepherd of Israel. We know that from the Old Testament. We know that clearly, that theme of the Messiah being the shepherd of Israel. And the wheels are turning. And they are maybe contemplating this. But then he says, at the end of this discourse, verse 30, I and the Father are one. Now, if, if you were going to say that, how would you probably say it? In English, we would, I would probably say, the Father and I are one. I mean, it's a little bit odd to say, I and the Father are one. But in the original language, in the original language, that word I is thrown to the front of that sentence for emphasis. I and the Father, speaking Aramaic, he would have said, are echad. One. And the cardinal doctrine in Israel, even to this day, the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And you shall have no other gods before me. And Jesus, 
dared to say, I and the Father are one. And you know from their response, it's interesting to me, throughout the history of Christendom, throughout the history of Christendom, there have been those who have debated if Jesus really claimed to be God. Wasn't he just the best, the highest created angel? Wasn't he the firstborn, the first created being of God? Did he really claim to have equality, that he was actually God himself? Could that have been possible? He would have said that. Well, I'll tell you what. You read the context here. The people he was speaking to, they had no doubt what he was saying. Because as soon as he said this, as soon as he said to them, I and the Father are one. Look what happened. And again, they picked up stones to stone him. And Jesus said, I have shown you many great miracles from Father. Which of these do you stole me for? Which of my miracles? Healing the blind, healing the lame. What are you killing me for? And they said, we are not stoning you for any of these, replied the Jews, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. They got it. There's no doubt there. There's no controversy among them what he's saying. I and the Father are one. I and the Father are one. And this announcement made at Hanukkah, at the Feast of Dedication in the wintertime in Jerusalem, is a real turning point for those who want to kill him and for those God is drawing to him of his flock. I and the Father are one. You know, this week we are still doing our memory verses, our foundational 50. I hope and encourage you to continue to keep them in front of you. And this week's verse that, that would, we, we would be memorizing together, it's a little bit longer. Titus 2, 12 and 13. It teaches us to say, the no to ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly in this present age, while we wait for the blessed hope. We wait for the blessed hope. We talked about that last week. The first Christmas, they were waiting in anticipation. They were anticipating. They were waiting. We wait for the blessed hope. And notice says. The glorious appearing, and notice this, of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Friends, this is one of the few places in Paul's writings where he very clearly, and many, and many debate this, and say, well, no, that's not. What he really is saying is the appearing of our great God and also of our Savior, Jesus Christ. But, but... Paul uses one article for both. That was very unusual. And the most natural reading in the original language, the most natural reading is exactly how it comes across here in the NIV translation. We are waiting for the appearing of who? Our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He is God. He is fully God. And he is our Savior. And in this passage, 
as you continue this passage, thanks Gary, as you continue this passage in, in Titus, he goes on to say this. He gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify, you could say to make us kosher, to purify us. The oil had to be eight, seven days. It had to be purified to be presented to God. You and I, because of sin, we need to be purified, cleansed, purified. And he came to do this, to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify us for himself a people that are his very own. And I just want us to stop. I just think it's important every Christmas season that we just, and it's good for us to be here today. It's important for us to just stop this Christmas season and ponder. You don't have to figure it out because you won't. But to ponder this Christian teaching that we, we hold to and we, we cannot compromise. We cannot agree to disagree on this. We cannot agree to disagree and say, well, you don't believe Christ was fully God. We do. It's all, it's all. No, we cannot agree to disagree. This is a bedrock foundational truth of Christianity. That Jesus Christ, born in the manger of Bethlehem, a baby, I mean, a baby, a newborn baby, was fully God and fully human, the incarnation. We need to stop and be reminded of this. Don't have to figure it out. Fully God. How is that possible? How could Mary hold in her arms this baby? Have you held a baby lately? A newborn baby. And it was fully God. Jesus Christ stood there at Hanukkah in the, in the in dedication, in the temple. And he said, tell us, is it you? I and the Father am one. I am God. I am standing here. I am right. Our theme this morning, fear. The presence of God. When the presence of God filled that temple in the Old Testament, what happened? They had to leave because it was so blinding. And frightening. And here he is in human flesh standing in the temple. Friends, the miracle of Christmas, and we must never forget it. Why? Paul says, he gave himself to redeem us. And the reason it's so important, and the reason we cannot compromise on this, this belief, this teaching, this doctrine, this truth, it is essential for my salvation. Why? Only a pure, holy sacrifice, pure and holy, can atone for sin. God is just. Aren't you glad God is just? What if he were unjust? What if he were fickle? Like the pagan gods. He is holy and just. And because of that, only a holy sacrifice
could pay for my sin because I am unpurified. But only a human could take my place. An animal will not suffice ultimately. And it was the only way. Isn't that what Jesus said in the garden? Father, if there is any other way, if there is any other way, let this cup pass from me. But there was no other way. And we just need to be reminded every Christmas season as we have our traditions, that our tradition as Christians is we hold high this teaching and this belief. It is the hope of humanity. It is the hope of salvation. Jesus Christ, born in Bethlehem, fully God and fully human. Why? So he could go to the cross of Calvary and redeem us as his own. And then let me close with this. And so Paul concludes this. To redeem redeem us from all wickedness, to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. The word eager there is the word zealous. It's the exact transliteration we get the word zealous from. That we are zealous to do good works. This is a great time of year. What are you going to do this week that's good? It's not going to earn your salvation. But what are you going to do this week as a result of the fact that God has saved you? That you have a hope of eternity. That you don't deserve heaven, but you have that promise and you are part of his his, his family today. And God knows you. Just as Jesus said, God knows my sheep. God knows you. And God knows how to take care of what belongs to him. What are you going to do this week? That's going to be evidence that we are zealous to do good and to show this world through our life that there indeed is a God who loves them, who cares for them, who came to earth. Friends, Christmas is a beautiful time of year. It's great. It, it's, it's a lot of stuff. I get it, right? There's a lot going on, and, and it's a busy time, and there's a lot of traditions, and there's a lot of things that have nothing to do with the birth of Christ. But it's still called Christ Mass. I don't care what they say. I've never heard any kids say, what are you getting for winter holiday? Have you? <laughs> it's still called Christmas. Let's take opportunity to be zealous for good works because God was so zealous to bring us salvation from the cradle to the cross to the grave. You need to come next week because our choir is going to share some beautiful Christmas music. Invite somebody. Invite somebody. Let's share it together as a family of God. Let's close our service our final song. Would you please stand with us as we sing the birthday of a king? Amen. Hallelujah. I'm not always real observant. I had that problem yesterday when I was talking to somebody about their how their child was, and they say, "Yeah, I'm, I'm expecting again." I looked and I said, "Oh, I should be more observant." You are, you know. 
And over here this morning, I'm, I'm sitting over here and uh, looking at the Christmas decorations and all of a sudden I realized there's two trees up there, right? <laughs> now for those of you over there, it's pretty obvious. But for those of us looking from this direction, unless we paid attention, there's two trees this year right one below the other. And I got to thinking, wouldn't that be great? That's right, John, there's two trees there. That's right. And, <laughs> you know, wouldn't that be great if the church, the body of Christ, represented God so much that the people began to see God? And then all of a sudden come the realization, oh, they represent, that they're not blended into it, they represent, we represent God. Friends, you you are, Paul, Paul says, you are our epistles. Not written with ink, but written with the grace of God. We are a letter. letter. We leave this place today. Go out and enjoy the new lobby, what you see of it, and anticipate the rest. When you leave the doors today, and you're welcome to go out those doors, and no, those are not our doors. Those are the temporary doors, okay? You're welcome to use that stairway. But as you leave today, you are an epistle, a letter that God is sending to this community of how much he loves us. Amen? Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this congregation to come today and to worship, to celebrate, to share, to have our children and youth involved. Uh, Lord, to have Sunday school class and learn from your word. And Father, I I trust each one of us, starting with me, we, we would really take time to just really meditate and contemplate and wonder about the amazing truth of the incarnation. How can it be? How could it be? And Father, we are called Christ ones, Christians. And may we represent you faithfully wherever you take us this week, whatever our course is, whatever our walk is, that we might represent a God who loves and desires that no one would be lost, but that all would come to faith and hope in the resurrection. We leave this place rejoicing in the hope of Christmas. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.